American journalists and other sentient pustules on the goat-like buttocks of Satan are absolutely furious with conservatives because conservatives are mocking the U.S. women's soccer team after the team's hilariously humiliating loss to Mesopotamia or Sweden or some absurd backwater like that. Conservative reaction to the American team's comical downfall ranged from startled surprise that a soccer match had been going on to startled surprise that anyone from a great country like the United States would stoop to playing a crap hole time waster like soccer to startled surprise that women would play soccer when they should be doing something useful or entertaining to uncontrollable laughter that the women's team had lost before conservatives were even aware they were playing whatever it was they were playing, which we can't remember because it was soccer. Now, For everyone who had something better to do than pay attention to soccer, perhaps I should explain. I'm sorry, I misread that sentence. Let me start again. For everyone who had something better to do than pay attention to soccer, let me explain. It turns out there actually is, or maybe once was, a U.S. women's soccer team, and they actually did set a record by losing the Women's World Cup before any of us knew such a thing existed. This amusingly public graveyard spin of spectacular abasement occurred when Megan Rapinoe, an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American loudmouth, missed a shot so easy that anyone could have made it if anyone cared enough about soccer to waste time kicking a ball that any self-respecting American would have picked up and thrown with the hands God gave him. Now, to be fair to the American news media and other winged spawns of the dark night of Western moral collapse, conservatives did seem to take some pleasure in the hitherto unheard of American team's pricelessly ignominious defeat. As one conservative commentator put it, quote, ha 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 unquote. But to look at it from a different angle than the media's, let's say the angle of decent and honest human beings, there were some ways in which the American women's soccer team had been kind of alienating to patriots and religious people and ensouled life forms and other entities who otherwise couldn't care less about soccer. For instance, Megan Rapinoe, an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American loudmouth, had shown disrespect to her home country in the presence of foreigners, as when she knelt during the American national anthem while playing against Thailand, whose players did not kneel during the Thailand national anthem because if they had, they would have been arrested and tortured before disappearing altogether. Conversely, Megan Rapinoe, an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American loudmouth, wrote a book about the experience and was lauded as a hero, which is almost exactly like being arrested and tortured, except for the fact that you're not arrested or tortured because you're an American, so stand up when the anthem is played, you miserably spoiled little weasel woman. Miss Rapinoe, an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American loudmouth, also ran a successful campaign to get women's soccer players equal pay for doing work that's equal to men's soccer players, except for the fact that it makes less money. So essentially, the women's team is now being supported with money earned by the men's team, which would be fine if the women's team would at least keep house for the men's team and then have sex with them instead of wasting their time losing at soccer. Now, I must admit that some conservative mockery of the women's soccer team's laughable loss was rather harsh. Like when I said that if the men's team is supporting the women, the women could at least have sex with them. That was a little harsh. But on the other hand, the harshness of that remark was balanced by the fact that it was almost as hilarious as watching Megan Rapinoe, an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American loudmouth, lose the match because she shoots like a girl. 
So all in all, I think we can come away from this controversy with the following lesson. If you're an ill-mannered and unpleasant anti-American weasel woman, don't disrespect the flag or you could be punished by being forced to play soccer. Then you'd really have something to complain about. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back. The vast right-wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. Let me, be, before I get going, let me share something that really nice that happened this week. Uh, Publishers Weekly, which is the main publishing trade uh, magazine, usually gives you your book, the first pre-publication review, uh, gave the House of Love and Death uh, a starred review, which is their highest honor. They said Claven's blistering third who done it? Featuring hitman turned poetry professor Cameron Winter is the best yet. Fans of complex investigators will be enthralled. There was also this from another uh, publication from the New York Journal of Books. Clavin's writing ability and his intelligence show up on every page and make the ride worthwhile. He's created a hero we can root for. And one of the winners of the mysterious press giveaway of advanced reading copies. This was to the Old Testament prophet known as Habakkuk. Uh, That's what he calls himself on X, as we now say. Uh, He also reviewed it and said, beautifully written and expertly plotted with mysteries aplenty. Three books in, and Clavin is running at full steam, exploring deep themes of depravity and self-sacrifice that hit you hard. Now, you know I hate plugging myself, but I'm going to do it for the next couple of months. The book comes out at the end of October. If you will buy it, pre-order it on Amazon, it really does help put the book on the bestseller list. You guys did the last two books, When Christmas Comes and A Strange Habit of Mine. You put them on the USA Today list, which is a more honest list than the New York Times, but it's gonna need a big boost to get on the New York Times list. And the reason I am so eager for that to happen is it gives me a lot of protection to say the sorts of things that I say. I've already come under a little pressure behind the scenes. You know I'm not gonna bend, but I won't have to fight so hard if I get on the list, which I hope you will do. And that will secure the series also for what I hope will be at, uh, at least 10 books. Also, so I've asked you for that. And while I'm asking you for stuff, please go on and subscribe to the Andrew Claven YouTube channel, my personal YouTube channel. Now that you just, you know, it's free and you get exclusive content. It's hurled through your window tied to a brick, but that's all right because uh, you weren't using that window anyway. Also, if you leave a comment and the comment is absolutely despicable, and attacks, you know, people on the basis of race and sex and all those things, we will read the comment on the show because that's the kind of content we love. Today's comment is from Chris Davis, 405. He says, we have a colloquial phrase in Memphis called dropping it off. When a communicator so beautifully and artfully delivers his message that it strikes the heart and stimulates the mind, Clavin, I would say that you have truly been dropping it off in your opening monument. Uh, monologues have been terrific. I, I love that. Well, thank you very much, but I also love that because I've never heard that expression before. So that's that's what we're going to say from now on, guys. We're here at Clavin Show. We're dropping it off. Let's get to today's episode, The Summer of Girl. Yes, we are, my friends. We're going to talk about Taylor Swift's 
incredibly successful concert tour, and we're going to talk about Barbie. I'm sorry, we have to do it. I'm going to tell you something while I do this about women that you don't know because you are not allowed to say it because it drives all kinds of women insane, but we're going to say it here. And we'll talk about the fact that Barack Obama is a homosexual and all the lies that are being told on the left and on the right. Let's get to chapter one, Why Girl? Is there anybody going to listen to my story? about the girl who came to stay All right, you've all heard the expression truth is stranger than fiction and I think we all can see that that is the case. But here's something else that we should know that fiction is truer than truth. When artists make a work, whether it's a story or a picture, a movie, a song, they reveal more about themselves and their moment in time than even they know. And when audiences flock to those works, it doesn't mean the work is good. It doesn't mean the work is enduring. It means the work is speaking into that moment in some way. It tells us something about the zeitgeist. That means the spirit of the age. Zeit means time, and geist is like ghost. It's the spirit. So it's the spirit of the time. This summer has seen two pop culture phenomena, the climax of Taylor Swift's era tours, which has broken all kinds of records, and the film Barbie, which has now made over a billion dollars worldwide. And the one thing we can say about both of these phenomena is that they are very girl. These are shows that are about girls, things that girls care about and think about, feelings and breakups and Barbie dolls, and what it feels like to be a woman. And never mind what the artists think they're saying, because they don't know. Never mind what our dishonest media on the left tell us they're saying, because we know what they're going to say. They're dishonest. And never mind what our clueless media on the right think they're saying, because they're clueless about culture. Today, I'm going to talk about what I think these phenomena are saying, because let's face it, that's what they're saying. You'll remember I recently said that I'd rather stick a screwdriver in my ear than go and see the Barbie movie just to show you how dedicated I am to finding the truth about our zeitgeist. I not only went, I went alone because my wife, knowing that I would rather die than go see a Barbie movie, had already made a date with her friends, her girlfriends to go see Barbie, uh, which I couldn't blame her for. So I went alone and I I couldn't, so I, you know, I couldn't even pretend that I was there. Oh, my wife dragged me. I couldn't even pretend that. So I kind of tried to sneak into the theater and so help me, I was recognized. <laughs> I was recognized in the elevator. No, no, no. I saw, I'm, I'm Matt Walsh. You've got me confused with somebody else. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, that's stunning and brave. You are literally shaking at how stunning and brave I was to go to the Barbie movie by myself. But there were reasons that I was called to these heroic heights. First of all, uh, someone who actually knows something about the arts had to settle whether Shapiro or Knowles is right about the Barbie movie. Obviously, in any argument between Shapiro and Knowles, the odds that Shapiro is is more right than Knowles are so great that if you bet on Ben in Vegas you act, and win, you actually lose money. It's like betting on the sun coming up. But but both of these gentlemen, in my humble opinion, have deficits when it comes to looking at the culture. Ben has a wide scope of reading and movie watching. He's got excellent taste. But Ben cannot like something unless it is, he agrees with it. Ben cannot like a work of art unless he agrees with it. And that's not my feeling about art. People that I hate and disagree with deeply sometimes make beautiful visions. Art is a vision of what it's like for a human being to be in the world. And even though you are a leftist, even though you're a fool, you can make a beautiful vision. And then taking that in actually increases your own soul because it gives you another way to look at the world. As for Knowles, of course, uh, he doesn't like actually like art. He doesn't actually read fiction. Uh, he doesn't go to most of the movies that 
people see. And of course, he's a fascistic papist uh, trying to undermine everything Americans hold dear and reinstall the Habsburgs on the throne of the Austrian Empire. So he just must be destroyed. I, who love all art and am pristinely perfect in my politics and morality, uh, went to see Barbie with a completely open mind, and I did settle definitively who is right about it, whether it is Shapiro or Knowles, and I will get to that. But the real reason that I was so self-sacrificing, stunning, and brave is this. I've said this before. I think it's absolutely true. Girls, right now, are at the hinge of human history. There's a famous painting that I've mentioned before. We can't show it on the air because it's obscene. It's by a painter named Gustave Courbet. He called it The Origin of the World, and all it is is an extraordinarily realistic painting of a woman's vagina, The Origin of the World. Now, in one sense, that's a very limited materialistic idea of the origin of the world. It might be more honest to call it the gateway into the world. But there's kind of a truth to it, too. Women are not only the factories of physical human life, I don't believe that we become full, physical, individual human beings until as babies we interact with our mother. I think there is science behind this and insight down the ages behind this is when you are at your mother's breast looking into her eyes that you begin to become an individual. That interaction sets off something in the human brain and the human spirit that then makes that person an individual. So women are the location where what was simply sex, what was simply desire, what was semen, what was a fruitless egg cell becomes the image of God, which means that women are also the model and inspiration for all human creativity, which is why I always say that the Virgin Mary is the most important solely human character in the New Testament, why she's the model of humanity. She is the the height of of humanity. It's why we argue over whether she was perpetually a virgin or not. It's why we often feel we can cry out to the Virgin Mary when the Father, God, seems too far away. And this role of creation is a role that every single woman is born into. Whether she chooses to play that role and have children, whether she can play it, whether she's physically able to play it, she is going to have to deal with it. Just because you don't do something, just because you can't do something, doesn't mean that it doesn't affect your life that you don't do it or don't or can't do it. The fact that I don't give birth has no effect on my life because it's never been a possibility. The way that both men and women deal with the feminine act of creation is the center of every society. It's the center of human life. The center of society, the center of human life is a man, a woman, and a child. And that doesn't mean that we have to hate on people, hate on childless women, or hate on women who are career women, decide not to have children, or gay people. Doesn't we don't to be honest with you, I don't have, happen to believe we have to hate on anybody to build a good society. We should hate the devil because he's after your ass. But I think as as it, when it comes to people, we can understand that God's creation is more weird and varied and interesting than we humans are comfortable with. I think I always think of humanity as being in the shape of a flower. They're like a daisy. What do they call them? A, uh, I can't remember the, the technical word for them. You know what a daisy looks like. It's got this big center, which is where the uh, the sexual organs are, the female sexual organs are. And then it's got all these uh, petals growing out of that center. And not all the petals may be beautiful, not all may be useful, not all may be good, but they're all part of the flower and they're all attached to that center, which in society and human life is a man, a woman, and a child. That's the center of the flower. And the flower has all these other things that have nothing, that are connected to that, but have nothing to essentially to do with that center. If we lose that center, 
through artificial wombs, through cloning, through cyber humanity, through women becoming so uncomfortable with the fact of who they and what they are that they cease to have as many children as we need to keep the world alive, we then have solved the problems of humanity by eliminating humanity itself. So it matters how women relate to their creative bodies and how they relate to men and how men relate to them. Society has to find structures for us to relate to our desires and to women's creativity like marriage is a good example of that kind of structure, that contain these structures are roles that have to contain us and restrain us without destroying our individuality. You need a flexible social role that's not so flexible that the marriage disappears altogether, but it's not such a straitjacket that you can't be yourself within the marriage. Right now, obviously, our roles, our sexual relationships are incredibly screwed up. On the left, there are people who basically claim that women, qua women, don't exist. If you put on a dress and wear a string of pearls, suddenly you're a woman. That is utter crap. It just isn't true. On the right, there are people who think that a pimp and misogynist abuser like Andrew Tate has something to tell us about how women should be treated or what masculinity is. That is also crap. So clearly people on both the left and the right are living in a complete solipsistic fantasy land when it comes to the truth about women. And solipsistic is a long word. It just means a theory that only the self is real, living in a fantasy in which only you are real and that outside world can be changed any way you want it to be. Transgenderism is BS no matter how many times they kick you off YouTube for saying it. Andrew Tate is BS. Both are outgrowths of feminism, which begins as a human rights movement, but is now ended as a solipsistic fantasy about the relations between men and women. That's why we're all so also screwed up. That self-destructive solipsistic fantasy is destroying us, and a new anti-feminist pact between the only two genders that exist is our only hope. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That brings us to chapter two, cosplay to the left. I stand against hate. I stand against hate. I stand against hate. It is time to take responsibility. <laughs> Stunning and brave. That was Hollywood people pretending to be human beings. Before we get to Tay-Tay and Baba, I want to take a quick look at our solipsistic fantasy life and how it is damaging us in politics, I think, on both sides. A really amazing article this week in the Jewish journalism site, a tablet, an interview between the tablet's literary editor, David Samuels, and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian David Garrow, who wrote a book in 2017, published in 17, 2017, about Barack Obama called Rising Star. These are both guys are liberals. Uh, Garrow, the historian, has identified as a democratic socialist. I don't know if he still is. But what's so interesting about this book is it shows the complete unwillingness of the left to leave its fantasies behind and deal with reality. Later in the week, I will be interviewing Jonathan Rosen, and I will remark to him about his book because it's about a guy who steps out of, it's like um, Wizard of Oz, a guy stepping out of the black and white house of theory into the colored world of reality, and the left refuses to do that. Garrow is a guy who writes a lot about the civil rights movement, and he wrote, he was attacked when he wrote about Martin Luther King, because he included a note in the FBI's files that said that King had watched and encouraged the sexual molestation or even rape of a woman. That story turned out to be 
confirmed in the recent def, uh, biography of Hoover, but they didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear that MLK was an alcoholic, which apparently he was. So they attacked the bringer of the news rather than ingesting the news and changing their theories to fit reality. They are in this solipsistic world where only they and their theories are right. And it's very destructive. Obama was the same way. You remember this, the hysterical love people had for him. He was a light bringer. He was a light worker. He was going to bring hope and change. Well, Samuels basically says that Obama, Samuels, the editor from Tablet, talks about Obama as a liberal. He says, looking back, it's hard to avoid the sense that Obama was the guy chosen by history to put something in the American goldfish bowl that made all the fish go crazy and eat each other. America's er emerging oligarchy, cementing its grip instead of going bust, the rise of monopoly internet platforms, the normalization of government spying on Americans, race relations going south, skyrocketing inequality, the rise of Donald Trump, the birth of Russiagate. It all happened with Obama in the White House. This is a liberal talking. Remember, so he goes to talk to Garrow to get at the truth. And here's the thing. Garrow tells the stuff that's in his book. His book was totally ignored when it came out because the, the left was too busy attacking Donald Trump. There's some really juicy stuff in it. One thing that's just a great story was that Obama wrote a letter to his college girlfriend saying he had repeated fantasies about having sex with men. Now, I may be wrong about this, but I think that actually means you're gay. I, I, the only time I've ever had fantasy of sleeping with a male was Winnie the Pooh, uh, and I was like five years old, and we were just cuddling. It was totally innocent. I think if you're fantasizing a lot about sleeping with men, you may be gay, but the point is this. Garrow reads the book, uh, Obama's biography, autobiography, Dreams of My Father. He looks at it, he says, this is crap, because he knows so much about the civil rights movement. He says, this is ridiculous. And there's this scene, I read the book too and thought it was fiction myself, but there's a scene where Obama, this is the famous scene, it's the linchpin scene, where Obama and his white girlfriend break up because they saw an August Wilson play, a very talented black playwright, and they get in an argument about Barack looking for his black identity when the girlfriend, Sheila Mayushi Jagger, says, no, all men are brothers or whatever, and they break up because Obama has to go off and become a black man. Garrow tracks this lady down, and she's now a very accomplished academic, and she says, no, that's not what happened. We went to an exhibit about the trial of the Nazi Adolf Eichmann, and there was a controversy at the time in Chicago about a black mayoral aide who gave a series of, lection, of lectures saying that Jewish doctors in Chicago infected black babies with AIDS as part of a genocidal plot against black people. And she called Obama on his not attacking this and not denying that this was true, basically saying that he was being anti-Semitic. And this is important because, remember, Obama became obsessed with bringing Iran into the company of nations. I'm not saying Obama was a personal anti-Semite, that he was mean to, to Jewish people, but I'm saying that he had an obsession with building up Iran, which would have lessened and endangered Israel. And so it was part of his life. And so, But the real point I want to make here, the real point is not one other journalist found this woman and asked her if the story was true, not one. And she was not hard to find. Garrow found her easily, and she was not unwilling to talk. And this is the, the point that the ignoring reality has become the entire way that the left operates politically. Here's Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey talking about sanctuary uh, cities months ago. I think it's really important that cities and towns have the ability, have the exercise of prerogative to label themselves whatever they want to 
label themselves. And if they want to uh, take on a sanctuary city designation, I think that's great. Um, I think cities and towns are, are in the position to be able to do that. And I've seen it done as a value statement, as a statement of principles, and I think that's great. I support that. So now, all of these people who are off unseen in Massachusetts because they were down south that have been flooding our open border that has been purposely, illegally, and relentlessly left open. Now they've been shipped up to some of these northern cities. Now they're living on the streets of New York and living on the streets of Boston. And here is the same lady talking this week, cut six. As of today, close to 5,600 families with children are living in state-funded shelters, hotels, dorms, and other emergency facilities across Massachusetts. That figure is 80% higher than it was just one year ago, and it's unsustainable. For this reason, today I am declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts. <laughs> emergency, it's an emergency. It's, it, again, it, there, there is the governor of Massachusetts stepping out of the black and white house of Kansas into the colored world of reality uh, and finding that, no, you know, it's, it's not, you can't just virtue signal when that's not the way reality works. Here is Kamala Harris. Now they're selling Bidenomics, right? The only person stupid enough to defend Bidenomics was the vice president, Kamala Harris, and of course, Joe Biden, but I can't call him stupid because he's just demented. But this is Kamala Harris defending Bidenomics. When President Biden and I took office, we decided to invest in the working people of America to create millions of jobs. And as today's jobs numbers make clear, Bidenomics is working. The hell you say? CNN is running, according to the Media Research Center, 79% of their coverage of Bidenomics is positive. They had a lead that I happen to see, move over Reaganomics. It's time for Bidenomics. Kamala says, well, Reaganomics was trickled down because they thought the rich were going to be generous. No, it wasn't. They thought the rich were going to create wealth. That's what business people do. And that means they have to hire people. That means they own private planes and they need a pilot and somebody to take care of the plane. They create jobs. They create wealth. Trickled down, worked for 25 years until they basically socialized it out of existence. And talking about Bidenomics, Donald Trump quite rightly put out figures showing that if you eliminate the COVID time, if you eliminate the shutting, the stupid shutting down of the economy under COVID, which was Trump bears some responsibility for that. You can't get around that. But if you eliminate that, he created more jobs. Trump created a higher uh, family, real family income, lower mortgage rates, uh, lower gas price, much lower gas prices, uh, regulatory, regulatory costs per household, all better under Trump. Trump did a far, far better job than Biden. However, now I want to say this. This is that's the that's the wage, the wages of lies, the wages of living in fantasy, the wages of not facing the truth, but only facing how you feel and how you look. And some of that is going on the right as well. So, chapter three, cosplay to the right. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Last week, last week, I read a piece by David Brooks in the New York Times, a former newspaper, in which Brooks put forward the idea that, hey, maybe we're the bad guys on the left. Now, I'm not a big Brooks fan, but I admired him for this. A lot of people said, oh, he hasn't really wakened up. But that's not the point. It's hard to admit 
that you might be the bad guy when you're surrounded by Hollywood, news media, academia, publishing, and government telling you you're the good guy. Just to say it even once, even if it doesn't change the way he behaves, is actually an accomplishment. And so I admired him for that. On our side, the right side, both politically and morally, we have the opposite problem. We are so used to being attacked and lied about and wrongly called names, you know, bigots and racists and sex, you know, all the names. It's hard for us to think about the fact that sometimes we may be in the wrong as well, because obviously we are flawed human beings too. In Ohio, an example, we just lost another abortion vote. This was a vote to make it harder to change the state constitution, which was a way of keeping abortion rights off the ballot. And it was heavily voted down, 57%. And this has happened everywhere that abortion has been uh, on a referendum, even in red states. Ohio was the fourth red state. There was Kansas, there was Kentucky, there was uh, Montana. They voted on the abortion rights referendum since uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and abortion bans lost. Doesn't mean that Republican candidates lost, by the way. People are smart enough, voters are smart enough to vote one way on one issue and then go back and say, yeah, but I still want a Republican to be the state senator or whatever. Most Americans, a majority of Americans, believe that abortion should be legal in the first trimester and a majority of Americans believe it should be illegal in the second and third trimester. That's the situation we're in. That means that in a democratic society, we have where you know you have to be innocent as doves and wise as serpents. Virtue signaling is virtue signaling is not just saying something that's untrue, like oh yes, it's wonderful, we'll be a sanctuary city, or yes, let's defund the police, that'll make everything just and better. It's also casting a vote to show how good you are, how holy you are, how righteous you are, instead of voting to win the day. If you try to put a complete ban on abortion on the ballot and you lose, more babies will die. More babies will die than if you put a ballot that can win and say, restricting it to the first trimester. Do I like that? No, I'm utterly pro-life. I'm utterly pro-life, but we cannot hold our candidates to a standard that's going to make them lose. We can't say, unless you come out and say you'll have a federal you know, ban on abortion, because that candidate will lose. We have to win in order to save the baby's lives. And then what you do is you go to work in the culture where this battle can be won. What we're talking about is culture. Sometimes you have to convince people before you take it to the ballot box. And you have to do that over time. And I think we can do that over time. I think we will do it over time because the science is on our side. Now, the same is true. And I know you're going to say this about Donald Trump. I got attacked by MAGA all this week for talking frankly about my fears that Donald Trump is not the guy who can lead us into the world that Donald Trump opened up for us. I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying if Donald Trump is nominated, as right now it looks like he will be, I'm not saying he will lose. I'm saying he's the most likely person to lose. And anytime, anytime I criticize Trump, I hear, that's Trump derangement syndrome. And anytime I praise him, people say, oh good, you've gotten over your Trump derangement syndrome. Instead of the obvious thing that I'm saying what I think is true, I, mean, I can be wrong, we can all be wrong, but I'm saying what I think is true in any given moment, and sometimes Trump does good things, sometimes he does bad things, and sometimes he's in a different position, and I have been displeased with him since the 
election. I've been displeased with the way he behaved. I'm displeased with the fact that he lost uh, the Senate races in Georgia by telling people not to show up because he was so mad about the election. And again, I have never said that the election wasn't stolen. I said I have said that I haven't been convinced that it was stolen. Last night I was at a party and I ran into the man. I won't name him because it was a personal conversation, but he is, I, I think, undoubtedly the greatest expert on election fraud in the country. And I know him pretty well, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And I said to him, so, was the last presidential election stolen or not? And he said, we will never know. And he explained to me why, but even he said he didn't know. And he's a guy, by the way, who thinks that the election system is so rigged by the left that it, some of you guys who are, believe it was stolen are actually less cynical than he is. But he said, we will never know whether that election was stolen or not. And that's basically where I stand, which means it can't be overturned. But people keep saying to me, if, if Trump is pushed off, they're so angry about the indictments, and I don't blame them. They're saying, if Trump is pushed off the ballot, I'll write him in. Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene said, I will still vote for Trump even if he's in jail. That is cosplay. That is virtue signaling. Because it may be emotional, emotionally satisfying. It may even feel like an emotional victory. But guess what? You're just voting for the other guy by withholding your vote from the best candidate you got. It's not, it's ridiculous to say that there's Donald Trump and the rhinos. That's ridiculous. DeSantis is no rhino. There are other candidates who aren't rhinos. It's, you got to play the hand you're dealt. This is reality. We do not live in this sheltered black and white world of theory. We live in a world of reality, the colored, multicolored world of reality. Okay, the reason I bring all this up is that I think a lot of the fantasy we live in is connected to feminism. You know that trope where when your wife says to you, oh, you know, does this dress make me look fat? You're supposed to immediately say no. You're supposed to lie to her. She wants you to lie to her. She wants you to lie to her. Now, I don't do that in my house. And I, you know, I tell my wife the truth. And I tell her, you know, if you want to talk about your problems and not have them solved, go to one of your girlfriends. By the way, when I, I don't ever think when I say, I, I say to my wife that I'm talking to her in a condescending or bullying or aggressive manner. She is the mistress of my house, which is a position of high honor, worthy of deep respect, and that is the way I speak to her. But I, that doesn't mean we don't communicate with one another, and I tell her the truth. This idea that lying is a virtue, that lying is something that you're supposed to do, that lying is a good thing, comes out of that idea of this is the way women are supposed to be treated. It has draped itself, that notion, over all the failures and sins of both the left and the right. It doesn't matter what really happens. What matters is I'm good, all right? So that is why I want to talk about the summer of girl. All right, final chapter. Ta-ta, tete. Bye-bye, Barbie. Now, none of you may be asking, why is a gray-bearded old guy going to talk about the summer of a girl? Now, normally, I don't address things like that because I think they are all left-wing ways of telling the right to shut up. When you say, oh, if you don't have a womb, you can't talk about abortion. What a stupid idea. If you're not black, you don't know the black experience. Utterly absurd. All just ways of shutting people up because the left has no arguments for their programs, which fail again and again and again because they don't match the real world. I have to say that I think I'm actually the best person to interpret the summer of girl because I don't care. 
I have no dog in this fight. I have the best wife in the world. I spent my entire life ignoring feminism. I never cared. I don't care what people do with their lives. I mean, it's, it's a blessing. It is a blessing. I am a natural libertarian. I don't care, you know, if they're, I see women making themselves incredibly miserable. I see men making themselves and women incredibly miserable. I wish they would stop doing that. I love them. I want them to be happy, but I know I only have a certain amount of power. And so I look at this and I just want to know, because I'm a culture maven, I want to know what the culture is telling me about the zeitgeist, okay? I was fascinated by the phenomenon of the Taylor Swift tour. This is probably the highest grossing tour of all time. Uh, Tay-Tay has got the most number one records by a woman, uh, most stream records in a day. She's huge. And I want to know why, because I look at her, look, I'm not going to knock her because I don't really know, I don't really care that much about popular music. I don't like it that much. I don't listen to it that much. I'm no judge of it. But she she does seem to me talented, right? She she seems I can't really judge the music, but her lyrics are well written and they're good in a different few different genres, pop basic, basically pop and country, uh, and and I like her lyrics. You know that song "We're Never Getting Back Together" is. It's, I heard the critics say, "Oh, these these are not as good as her usual lyrics." That's wrong. <laughs> Those are good. Just the use of the word "exhausting" in the song is well. It's well heard. You know, I can tell when a writer is doing well. "Teardrops on My Guitar" is a great title for a country song. She is good, and of course, she's very pretty, and she has a nice voice, and apparently does a great show. Though I can't judge that either. So I have nothing against her, but why she should be such a huge phenomenon? A phenomenon. I. I wanted to know, right? So I spent the last couple of weeks listening to her music and watching some concert footage and watching her documentary, Miss Americana. So I know it's stunning and brave, right? You're trembling with how stunning and brave you are. And, and by the way, I also can see, I can see that little girls love her and older women who are in touch with their little girl selves love her and little gay guys love her. And they all go to this concert and they cry and they're overwhelmed and they go, they make it a pilgrimage. And and she seems to be very nice to her fans, which I also admire because it's hard. And I don't want to overanalyze her line by line. I could do that, but I don't want to take her songs apart line by line. I just want to notice that she is very girl. Her songs are always about Two things. There are two things that they're about. They're about relationships. You know, I want to be with you, but you're with somebody else, or I am with you and it's a fairy tale, or uh, we broke up and I'm sad. They're about relationships, or they're about people are saying this about me, but it's just not true, I don't, or I don't care. One of the others is, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be put in any, you're not going to tell me who I am. And she talks about this a lot in her documentary, Miss Americana. She talks about the fact, which any performer could talk about, that she is desperate to be loved, and she wants to be seen as good, and she finds this oppressive, that this is what she wants, and she gets very upset when the fans don't like her. The documentary is kind of funny because, like all girls, she has to tell a story of triumph over adversity, but, you know, she's been famous and successful since she was 17, so adversity for her is, you know, when Kanye West's fans don't like her, that's adversity for her, but all God's people have problems, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not knocking her. I'm just saying it was kind of kind of cute that that was what her idea of adversity was. But when you live for approval and you think that people are condemning you, you have to do one of two things, right? You either have to change and fulfill the expectations of the people who are condemning you, or you have to philosophically dismiss the categories by which you're condemned. And that's the way feminism works, okay? 
basically feminism says these values that they're condemning us on are social constructs. It's not bad to be fat. It's not bad to be a bitch. You know, this is just things that people say about women, but they're not bad. And that is how Taylor Swift ends Miss Americana. By the end of it, this is what she is saying. It's cut nine. I'm trying to be as educated as possible on how to respect people, on how to deprogram the misogyny in my own brain toss it out, reject it, and resist it. Like, there is no such thing as a slut. There is no such thing as a bitch. There is no such thing as someone who's bossy. There's just a boss. We don't want to be condemned for being multifaceted. <laughs> okay, now, of course, every word she just says is untrue, and it's at the heart of feminism, which is we are forced, women are forced to be the way they are. My problems as a woman are the problems of foisted upon me by social construct. And she's wrong. There is such a thing as a bitch, and it's a nasty, lousy thing to be. Uh, bossiness is unattractive in women, more unattractive in women than it is in men, and that makes it ineffective, by the way. And by the way, I've had men and women bosses work with them perfectly happily. happily. If you ask me to, to generalize, I would say the men are better bosses than the women. But it's never bothered me because I know I'm going to do my job as well as I can and as honestly as I can, no matter who's in charge. So it doesn't really bother me you know, who, who is the boss? And being a slut is degrading. It is a degrading thing to be, much more so for a woman than for a man, because, first of all, simply the act of being entered is more profound and personal than the act of entering. That's one thing. But also, in order to be a slut, you either have to kill the babies you, saw, you uh, create by mistake or you have to become a sterile cyborg through the use of birth control. And women are catching on to this. Women are catching on to the fact that essentially birth control defines them out of existence. Here is another Taylor, because all women are now named Taylor, comedian Taylor Tomlinson. Tom Linson. And I've watched a lot of her stuff, and she's not that funny because she's a woman, but, but she is a thoughtful, intelligent person. And this is what she says in one of her uh, stand-up routines, Cut 10 love to get off birth control because I'd love to meet me, you know? <laughs> I've heard that when you get off birth control, you're just like, has anyone in here gotten off of birth control? You have right here? Oh, a lot of us. Okay. All right. How did that go for you? I broke up with my boyfriend. You broke up with your boyfriend of six years. <laughs> These are the stories I'm talking about. <laughs> this is what I've heard about. You stop You stop getting doing birth control and you don't. Your sense of smell changes. Your sense of smell you changes. Oh my God! So wait, what did your what did your ex boyfriend smell like before when you were on birth control, and what did he smell like once you got off birth control? You're like, when I was on birth control, he smelled like my future, and when I got off, he smelled like the past. Yeah, you bet he did. You bet he did because suddenly you became yourself, which is a woman with a creative body, with a fertile body that produces images of God when it after it has sex. My underlying point is this: this lie of feminism, which Taylor Swift is expressing. Is, is that it is a social construct that women are completed by someone looking at them. That is not true. This is the thing you are not allowed to say. Women have to be completed by someone else. And they hate this about themselves because it means someone is going to have control over them. That is inbuilt. 
women, that's never going to change. Women's souls are built like their bodies with a center that has to be filled in order to be creative. Society doesn't do that. That is part of life. And this is what Andrew Tate understands. This is how he manipulates and controls women by using this fact that feminists deny so that, that men feel like a wimp and they say, oh, Andrew Tate knows how it's done. But no, he's abusing, he's abusing people because of the way they are. But it's still is at the heart of who a woman is. Have you ever noticed that when boys play with Superman dolls, they don't grow up and say, oh, I couldn't live up to Superman. I couldn't fly around and be muscular. They don't say it. They don't say it. They don't need to be completed by the doll. They were just playing. They were pretending, imagining to be Superman. But that's not true when it comes to Barbie, which brings me to Barbie, which is a talented artist's attempt to make a very big statement about being a woman. And and here are we, we have to turn to find out if it's good to two men because only conservative men can judge uh, a movie about women. So let's go first to Ben Shapiro. This movie is not just a piece of shit. This movie is a flaming piece of dog shit piled atop an entire dumpster on fire, piled atop a landfill filled with dog shit. So the basic idea of the film, they, they really have no basic idea of the film. They don't know whether they hate Barbie or they we're supposed to kind of like Barbie. It, it, it seems they kind of despise Barbie as a fascist emblem, as we'll get to. The basic sort of premise of the film, politically speaking, is that men and women are on two sides of the divide and they, and they hate each other. And literally the only way you can have a happy world is if the women ignore the men and the men ignore the women. That seems to be the, the final outcome of this film. I was trying to separate this into problems with plot and problems with character and problems with, with the politics of the film, but they're all intertwined because the thing is just a mess. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that was Ben's, you know, subtle, you know, nuanced opinion. Uh, and then, of course, there was Michael Knowles who said this, cut 13. It's great. It's great. I was primed to like it because, one, uh, it's always fun to disagree with Ben, but, uh, you know, sometimes Ben and I agree. And two, because Greta Gerwig did a great job with Lady Bird, her movie that came out in 2017, I thought was really, really excellent. So I already had this sense that Greta Gerwig is not some just crazy radical who gets everything wrong. Lady Bird was a very conservative movie. And so I, I watched it. Guys, from the very beginning, it's not even particularly ambiguous that Barbie is a conservative movie. The, the short version of it is it opens up with this, this homage to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And it's these little girls playing with their baby dolls and they're having a nice time. Then Barbie comes in as this icon of feminist progress and the girls start killing their babies, which if that doesn't sum up feminism, I don't know what does. <laughs> All right, who is right? Simple, definitive answer. Knowles is completely wrong. And Ben, Ben is exaggerating. He likes to exaggerate. The picture is not awful. It's really not an awful movie, but it's slow and it's, it's not very good. And it's, and it's, it lectures you endlessly. It's not that funny. Uh, the, the sets are great, obviously. It's, and it's dishonest about the world, what the world actually looks like and how the world actually works. And Ben is especially right about this. It makes no sense. It's artistically incoherent. And if it weren't, it, you know, the tagline for the movie when they sold it in the trailers was, if you hate Barbie, you'll love this film. And if you love Barbie, you'll love this film. Well, that's a film without vision. That's like my saying, if you hate Hitler, you'll love this movement. But if you love Hitler, you'll also love this movement. No, <laughs> one or the other has to be the case. Ben is very right. The film makes no sense. And the reason people flock to it is because at its heart, it's dishonesty. 
is very girly. Tell me I don't look fat in this dress. Lie to me because I need to see me in a certain way. At the heart of the film is the lie, the feminist lie, that what women are lacking is power. That's what they need is power. And power is the thing they need. And society, social constructs, bar their path to that power. In the matriarchy of Barbie, Barbie starts in this matriarchy where everybody, Barbie holds all the political offices, does all the jobs, she's all the doctors, all that stuff. Ken is essentially a woman. Ken lives to be seen by Barbie. And that's a way that Greta Gerwig is saying that women have been put into this position where they can only be completed by being seen. They have an emptiness that needs to be filled because they haven't got power They haven't got power, so they need to be seen. And if we could just reverse the societal roles, then women would not have that problem. That's a lie. This is the way women are made. Women are made with an emptiness that needs to be filled, and that bothers them because it means that they need a man in their life, and that if they don't have that man in their life, they're going to get something else to fill that space, and it's going to be Andrew Tate or something else that's unhealthy. There's a now celebrated speech uh, delivered by America Ferrara in, in this show. And it, it's, it's really interesting because none of the philosophy, people say all kinds of different things. Men hate women and women hate women. A mother stands still so that her daughter can look back and see how far she's gone. That, that's a stupid saying. That sounds like a Hallmark card, but that's a stupid thing to say. And then there's this speech, which everybody's quoting Cut 11. Cut 11 yeah. It is literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like, we have to always be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. (laughs) You have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but also you have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss, but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane. But if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. Now, All of that in this speech is ultimately blamed on patriarchy. But patriarchy created none of those problems. Patriarchy doesn't care whether women make money. Patriarchy doesn't care whether women are in the workplace. Patriarchy values women as homemakers and mothers. It doesn't want them to be obsessed with power. It doesn't expect them to be a boss but be nice. It expects them to just be nice. We don't care whether women are bosses. That's why the movie makes no sense. It can't admit that the problem is feminism. It can't admit that it is impossible to be both a feminist and to be a feminine person because the problem with feminism is that it is male. It is. It elevates male values namely power, centrally power. Femininity is not about power, it's about creation. And this is why Knowles makes a mistake. He doesn't, he's not reading the movie right. He is 
right that in this incohate, incoherent stuff, there is a lot of stuff praising motherhood and elevating motherhood because Greta Gerwig is an artist and she does know that motherhood is at the center of womanhood, but she can't say that because then she's not a feminist and then she won't get the reviews and the billions of dollars that she is getting for this picture. Power is all feminists think about. It's all the Barbie movie talks about. And women can't figure out why that doesn't work for them, why they kept keep ending up being used and abused. Why is Me Too still a thing? It comes into the news for a little while and then it goes away because the men aren't paying attention to it. And why is it that women who are powerful wind up with men who abuse them? This happens again and again. It happened to Simone de Beauvoir, one of the first feminists. She was out with the Jean-Paul Sartre who treated her like crap. And she said, I can't help it. This is what I want. This is what she said. And the reason that power does not work as a feminine value is because women are inherently physically from birth about creation. And here's the kicker. Creation is the opposite of power. A human body, think of a human body like an instrument. I'm going to drive this metaphor right into the ground, but there's a, there are only two kinds of instruments. There's a male instrument and the female instrument. We all have male and female in our souls. All of us. We all have parts of us that could be called male or female, but we play our souls into the world on the instrument of our body, right? I'm beating this metaphor in the ground. A harp can't play the trumpet part. A trumpet can't play the harp part. And you can't turn a harp into a trumpet. You play your soul on the instrument you have, which is the instrument of your gender. And there are only two of them. And just like an instrument, your body has a range of things it can express and a range of things it can't go. Women have creative bodies and creativity is not an act of power. It's an act of surrender. Every artist knows this. Every artist knows you don't make the things you make. You submit to the things you make. You let the inspiration come in and you are forced to bring it out again. And that describes pregnancy too. Creativity is an act of surrender. And women in creating surrender themselves to a man. And they're created to do that. That's why they need to be seen. That's why they need to be completed. And you can be seen by Andrew Tate, who hates you. You can be seen by your boss, who doesn't give a damn about you. You can be seen by the feminist, who will lie to you. Or you can be seen by a man who loves you and cares for you. Ben is right about this, too, in the picture. The movie ends with Ken saying, oh, I should just be Ken, and Barbie should just be Barbie. And that sounds really inspiring. Just be yourself. It's nihilistic death, just like abortion is, just like living on birth control. We women and men are made for one another. We are made to come together at the center of the human experience and create life and become one flesh. And we can't do that by denying the existence of femininity like the transgenderists do. And we shouldn't do it through abuse and domination like the Andrew Tates of this world. I cannot believe anybody elevates that pimp. It's disgusting. You know how we do it. You know the only way to do it right, and that's through love. It's simple, but it's hard. You do it in kindness and gentleness and sacrifice. We give up things we want for one another in order to be with one another, in order to be part of one another. And we make life, and in making life, we become one flesh, and that's the true and only transgenderism. That is how a man and a woman become one flesh. That's true surrender, not getting pimped, not getting impregnated and dumped, becoming one flesh, the center of life. And if the center doesn't hold, it doesn't matter who wins the next election, because if we can't build a protected center in which a woman and a man can dwell together and become one flesh and create new life, we won't just lose our freedom, we'll lose our humanity, which is the living image of God. And that image comes into material existence at the origin of the world. 
You know, when I was a reporter back in the day, I used to cover courts. I used to cover trials. And whenever I see one of these shows or podcasts where they prove that some guy in prison is innocent, I always think the same thing. No, he's not. He's not innocent. That, just leave him where he is. That's why I'm really excited to find out that Candace has just wrapped a 10-part series called Convicting a Murderer. You're not going to want to miss this. It's one of our most ambitious projects. You might think you're familiar with the Stephen Avery case and everything that happened in Manitowoc County. This is especially true if you watch Making a Murderer, but it turns out the filmmakers only told you part of the story. And coming soon, Candace Owens will unveil the shocking parts of Avery's story that were omitted in the Netflix series. Here's the Convicting a Murderer trailer. Check it out. This is a collect call from uh, Steve. an inmate at the Calumet County Jail. The man served 18 years in prison until DNA evidence cleared his name. The Two Rivers man was convicted of sexual assault in 1985, but exonerated with DNA evidence in 2003. So this is the infamous Avery Lott. Now, two years later, he again finds himself tied to a police investigation. Accused of murdering Teresa Halbuck on the Avery property. Stephen Avery's 16-year-old nephew admitted his involvement in the rape and murder of Teresa Halbuck. The car is discovered just around the bend. It was just this worldwide phenomenon. I think they framed this guy. I think he intended to crush the vehicle, but ran out of time. Avery thinks the $36 million lawsuit he filed is why he's being targeted in this investigation. 1021 at 24 Main Street. Do we have Stephen Avery in custody? Netflix made millions of dollars from making a murderer, but the filmmakers left out very important details. Mountains of evidence that you have not yet seen. The blood vial. The most egregious manipulation from the movie. Interrogation. That's when he started beating me because I told him that he's sick. Cell phones. And I saw melted plastic parts of a cell phone. Interviews. Her arms were pinned behind her head. They made Stephen Avery look like a victim. Do you believe your brother's guilty? I don't know if I'm a suspect. I got on hide. I'm getting sick and tired of media deception evidence piling up. Why would they omit so many different things? Why are you editing my testimony? I am not going to make the same mistake that the filmmakers did. Rearranging the testimony, they delete a portion of it at the end. How could they claim to care about the truth? They all know that Stephen Avery committed this crime. The evidence forces me to conclude that you are the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. <laughs> to get the rest of the story, you have to watch Convicting a Murderer coming to you this September. A 10-part series is exclusive to Daily Wire Plus. So join now at dailywire.com slash subscribe to get 25% off your new annual membership so you can watch Convicting a Murderer when it premieres. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. It's time for Clavin Clapbacks. I mean, this is like a sick joke. For me personally, I'm just like, this is dark comedy. Yeah! <laughs> All right. Clavin Clapbacks at dailywire.com. Clapbacks is spelled with a K. So is Clavin, by the way. Clavin, K-L-A-P-B-A-C-K-S 
at dailywire.com. Write to us. Tell us what you think of the show. Tell us when you disagree. We love to hear uh, from you whether you agree with us or whether you're wrong. We, we want to hear from you, and we will try and read as many on the air as we can. From Sam, hello, Clavin. If Christian, Christians truly believe in heaven, why are most people terrified of death? It seems paradoxical to me that everyone wholeheartedly believes in a glorious afterlife, and yet no one wants to go there. I'm curious how you'd respond to that. Uh, Jesus himself was afraid of death. He sweat blood at the face at, uh, in the face of being crucified. His heart was troubled. He threw himself down on the ground and prayed that the cup could pass. Death is bad. We don't like death. That is one of the reasons we are so encouraged and inspired by the resurrection. But we still know we are going to have to pass through this gate and lose the thing we have here. When, when you know God, when you love God, life is very beautiful. Life is very beautiful, and you don't want to. You don't want it to end. I, I feel this. That's the way I feel. Certainly, I, I I treasure every single day, and I you know I'll be I'll be sorry when it ends. It's been a beautiful experience. I, I believe I have faith that there is more. I live as if there as if there is more, but I don't know what it is, and it, it's scary and dark, and nobody knows, and it's the great existential question. Nobody said you're not supposed to be afraid. Sometimes I hear, actually, I hear priests say that, you know, we, we shouldn't mourn she's gone to a better place. No, I, I think we should mourn when we lose something, because this, this life we will never have again. Uh, from Peter, I'm a big fan of the show and always find your insight to be different and in many ways wiser than the other Daily Wire hosts. That's a low bar, but stuff. I've been frustrated by the fact that no one reviewing Oppenheimer has mentioned that there are multiple sex scenes with full nudity. I understand the concept of artistic license, but to put pornography on the screen is unnecessary and disgusting. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions. Well, my thoughts are, are varied on this. It's, it's not full nudity. I mean, you see a topless woman, I think, is basically what you see. And, and they are having sex. First of all, I find most nude scenes are unnecessary. I do believe that most nude scenes are unnecessary. And they're just there because people like to look at beautiful women, and that will bring people to the theater. But that's, that's not fair. They also are there because the human body is beautiful. The other side of this is not all nude scenes and not all sex scenes are, are pornography. The scenes in Oppenheimer are not pornography. They are not there to titillate. They are there to create a certain experience and to show off the beauty of the human form, which artists have been doing since ancient Greece and before. You know, the statues of nudes are in all the museums, and I'm sure they don't bother you, and I'm sure you don't think those are uh, pornographic. And so this is not pornography. Is it necessary? Probably not. Is it good that an actress has to take off her shirt to make a living? I don't think so. But the human form is very beautiful, and it is part of art, and I understand why visual artists uh, use it. And so I didn't think this was pornographic, but I did think if you feel that way, you shouldn't go and watch it. From Bill Hale Claveman, regarding your comments on USO, UFOs, I would urge you to reconsider your second level assumption that most scientists are correct in assuming that faster than light travel is impossible. It wouldn't be the first time cocksure scientists made a grave mistake, would it? Oh no, I'm, I'm not making that mistake at all. I think, I think faster than light travel is, is almost certainly possible. I think there, it is going to be possible to travel through space eventually. My point about that is simply that obviously it's not the first thing you discover. We are the only thinking life forms we know, and it has taken us a long time just to get to the point where we could discover that light traveled at all, where we could discover science at all. It took us thousands of years just to have a scientific revolution. So I have to assume that a civilization that can travel faster than light is far advanced from ours. And if it's far advanced from ours, why are there spaceship crashing all the time? 
Let's do Elizabeth. Dear Andrew, this is less of a question and more of a scream for help. I just finished listening to your latest episode when you talked about how God has to be the underlying foundation for a comprehensive conservative vision for America. I agree with you, but I'm struggling to deal with the complete shallowness and showmanship of the modern American church. Every praise session is a concert production where everyone's eyes are closed, hands in the air, swaying in a trance. Well, I'm just standing there like a moron praying for God to end my misery. I don't like that kind of worship either. I, apparently, some people like it, and I think you can find churches where, uh, you know, especially Catholic and Anglo, Anglican Catholic and Orthodox churches where the ritual is much more profound and centered and theological than that. But if you can't, maybe bring some friends together who are Christians and, and simply discuss these things and start a, what is essentially a church of your own, because I think that that is where we're going to have to go, because the American church, you're right about this, the American church has become shallow. It has fallen apart, as we saw when it closed all its doors during uh, during COVID because they were afraid of death. I got to end there. Become a member today. You can you could hang on a little while longer for a member block. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use code Claven at checkout for two months free on all annual plans or don't and be plunged right now into the Clavenless Infinity.